The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, we're days away from one of the most anticipated murder trials of the year. Did Christian Rivera murder 20-year-old University of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts while she was out for an evening jog? What about the other suspects that police looked into? Court TV's legal correspondent, Julie Janae, is back to bring us up to speed on the latest developments. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. And this episode of the Court TV Podcast is, to me, absolutely fascinating because I've been covering trials for decades now. And in all these cases, defense attorneys try to point the finger in another direction. And you're like, well, yeah, maybe. Then, you know, you read online and some people are kind of extrapolating a little bit and come up with an alternative theory. But in the case we're going to talk about today, there are actual viable suspects. They've all been cleared by law enforcement through their investigation, so they haven't been charged or arrested. But as we go through each of these suspects in this case that we're going to talk about, every one of them, I could almost find them guilty based upon some of these circumstances. It, it, is, it is that crazy. And I've never seen this before. This is like watching Law & Order. Because if you watch Law & Order, you know there's always more than one person that looks really guilty. And the first person who gets arrested or is a suspect is never guilty. It's always the second or third. And that's where we are in the case involving the murder of Molly Tibbetts. Molly Tibbetts was a, a, in Brooklyn, Iowa, college student, went jogging July 18th, 2018, disappeared. She was found in August. But the question was, who was responsible for her murder. They've arrested a man named Christian Rivera. We'll be covering his trial on Court TV, but in this podcast, we're not going to focus on him. We'll focus on him in another podcast. Today, I want to talk about the other four suspects. And once again, they've all been cleared by law enforcement and none of them were arrested. Let me bring in Court TV legal correspondent, Julia Janae. Julia, have you ever come across a case like this where there are, I mean, some of these facts to me are unreal and i'm i'm a big circumstantial uh, evidence guy and i i, I might have convicted all four of these i mean we're looking at five different suspects in this case essentially and they're not connected it's not like a family of people it's not like a group of people who are all working together these were all separate people that officers found credible evidence to at least investigate when they were looking for Molly Tibbetts. I mean, this manhunt was huge. Right. And one thing that investigators did is they uh, subpoenaed and got records from Google tracking cell phones and things like that. But I want to start with the first one, because to me, this is a very bizarre fact. On July 18th, 2018, the day that Molly Tibbetts vanished, hours later, According to investigators in their uh, unsealed warrants, they say there was a man washing his car 1030 at night, a dark colored SUV. Julie Janae, I mean, who washes their car 1030 at night? I don't ever. That's not a time of night that you want to be outside. Maybe that's because I'm a woman. But um, this is a rural area. 
in Iowa and we know from just Molly Tibbetts mom and family people felt very safe being out at night and she even felt safe jogging by herself um so I think it will be interesting to see how a jury would have handled a case like that because depending on where you live you may feel differently about that but yeah to me 10 30 at night very strange how do you even it, it see it reminds me a little bit yeah how do you see and why why at that moment does the the car have to be washed now this reminds me a little bit of the ice cream man trial where in that case it wasn't someone who was washing his car at night he was painting his van overnight and i i found that was such an incriminating circumstance but that was a hung jury in that case so uh what, what do i know but in this case the other problem is investigators said they had business records and video surveillance of, of him washing the car. But when they spoke with him, he, he said, no, 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 I wasn't at that car wash that day. I was there three days later. So now you have a guy potentially, according to police, at least initially, they thought that perhaps he was lying about when he was washing his car. Who washes his car 1030 at night and then lies about it? Or forgets if that's his argument that he didn't remember that he did that at 1030. I don't know. That's a tough one. But people have different habits. They have uh, different ways of doing things. I work late. So sometimes my meal schedule is different than a lot of people. But um, we know officers in this case, they were turning over every stone, looking at those surveillance videos from all around where anyone could have been who was a suspect. Uh, yeah. And again, to me, it's extremely suspicious. But this one, um, it's just kind of like one fact, this suspicious. It was a dark colored SUV, which, you know, could be somewhat suspicious. And the fact that he he. What he says to investigators doesn't jive what they see as the evidence. But anyway, they cleared him. OK, so the neighbor washing the car has been cleared. Uh, but, he, he, you know, it may be an issue during the trial uh, if the defense brings it up. The second one is a 17 year old who happened to be a Facebook friend of Molly Tibbetts. And Molly Tibbetts had a boyfriend. This is actually another potential suspect, but he he had an alibi. He was out of town, right, uh, uh, Julia? So there was no way that Molly Tibbetts' boyfriend had anything to do with this right from the right from the start. Right, that she was staying with him and with his brother, but yes, they were not home at all, and um, that's why that was not even a suspect that came out in this case. Right. So Tibbetts' boyfriend apparently is is out of town. He's on some crew, that some work crew, construction crew. Meanwhile, this 17-year-old Facebook friend of Molly Tibbetts has a brother who is on this work crew with Molly's boyfriend. So investigators say, huh, so if this guy's Facebook friends with Molly Tibbetts, his brother works with Tibbetts' boyfriend, he knows that the boyfriend's out of town, let's take a closer look. They look at his cell phone activity and he's in the area of where Molly Tibbetts was. And then he said, I was home. And then he said, well, maybe I was out mowing a cemetery. Red flag. Wow. You don't know where you are and you may have been in a cemetery. What? Again, these are hard details to forget unless you mow the cemetery every week and you don't have a set time. But I got to say, when it comes to Facebook friends and acquaintances. This is a small rural town in Iowa. So there's probably a lot of connections 
that there are when you have a lot of friends. She's a college student. And sometimes people, everyone in your high school, you're friends with. And they're, of course, going to be connected to people who you could be dating. So I, I don't think that is as much of a red flag. Uh, but not knowing where you are and possibly doing something to the data on your phone is questionable. Well, well, well so, the first the first point you're making is about it's like the Kevin Bacon effect, right? The six degrees of separation. So in a small town, everyone is somewhat connected. Right. Right. So. Um, all right. But then y- y- the, the big deal here, though, is that he wipes the cell phone data from his phone. All right. Um, I'm not 17, but I, I can't. I can't. Why would a 17 year old wipe his phone? I don't see that. Right. Viable well, why? Thing. I have not heard of any teenagers who will wipe their phone only because teenagers these days are so connected to everything that's going on on their phone. They're not going to want to lose those text messages, those photos, those social media contacts. I think that is a huge red flag. And kudos to investigators for looking deeper on that one. Yeah. Uh, So people who wipe their cell phones are people who want to get rid of something. They want to eliminate a trace of anything. Um, I know teenagers from from having teenagers, if they uh, are separated from their phone for five minutes, they start to shake and sweat. Uh, And this 17 year old is just wiping everything off, which is which is absolutely bizarre. He admitted doing it. But uh, Julia, in the cases that we cover on Court TV, that has become such a huge part of every investigation is the digital footprint that each one of us have. And when you talk about the cell phone, that is the biggest footprint. And oftentimes in case after case becomes the place where investigators can find find things that years ago we never would have come across. Your phone not only tells you. The investigators, where you are, where you've been, who you've been close to, what towers have been pinged because of where you were. But it it gives, like you said, a digital footprint of every site you've been to, anything you were looking at, Googling, even if you were just looking at the temperature or how to make something. All of that is information that these investigators are then able to put in front of a jury at trial. But I also think that people are wiping their phones these days when they know they're under investigation or someone is closing in on them. And it sometimes has nothing to do with the murder. It has to do with a drug uh, abuse that they are trying to cover up or some other unrelated thing that they don't want investigators fishing around in their phone for. But it does make them look very guilty. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it makes you look very suspicious, very suspicious. And, you know, 17 years old, Molly Tibbetts is, is uh, a college student. So, you know, that's another part of this whole thing. Um, the connection with the boyfriend, knowing he's out of town, somewhat of a connection on Facebook. You, you put all this together. If I'm an investigator, I'm looking at this. I'm like, hey, this this guy better have an alibi. And if his alibi is, you know, a bunch of dead bodies at the cemetery, uh, that's not necessarily going to fly unless he can prove uh, that he was there. And, and apparently he whatever information that he provided was enough for them to say 17 year old who wiped your cell phone and couldn't remember where he was at the time of the abduction and murder. Uh, you're clear. So, so he's in the clear now. Can you imagine being those investigators, not knowing where Molly Tippett's is this manhunt is massive and you don't, you don't have her body and you find a potential suspect who has ties to a cemetery. I just can imagine the light bulbs going off in their mind that we could be closing in on at least finding her. Okay. When we come back, though, we'll take a look at two more suspects. And these ones, 
much more suspicious than the first two. That's next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. We are taking a look at the other suspects who were investigated in the disappearance and murder of Molly Tibbetts, a college student from Iowa, Brooklyn, Iowa, who went jogging one day, uh, July 18th, 2018, never, uh, never seen alive again. And, and her body was found uh, in August, about a month later. Now, the man responsible, uh, according to investigators, is Christian Rivera. His trial's coming up here on Court TV, but... In this podcast, again, we are focusing on the other suspects who were investigated and cleared by law enforcement. But the big looming question is what role could they potentially play at a trial where prosecutors have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt and the defense merely needs to raise a reasonable doubt. So we're up to the third one. And to me, this guy is one that they looked at uh, for a long, long time. And he's a farmer. The way I describe him, he's a farmer with a history of stalking women, right? I mean, just just on a, just reading the headline, you're like, that's where you've got to start this investigation, right? If you've got someone who um, whose home is just 200 yards from where Molly Tibbetts' cell phone dropped off, all right? So he, he, he lives in the area, and he's a farmer with a history of stalking women, Julia. I mean... Investigators always go this route in cases like this. They look for people who have a little bit of a history. They do. And that's quite a history when you're talking about a missing college student who was running alone in the area. Um, His background of searching them out. I mean, this is eventually I know we're not talking about the actual suspect in this case yet, but he, too, was accused of stalking her before then eventually being the one who is standing trial for her murder. So th- that word, stalking, that that definitely would have been a red flag for these investigators on the case. Right. And, and for a jury, if he was the one on trial and he's not, unless the defense tries to put him on trial, um, it would make him look guilty. This is, I mean, a, a jury would look at him and say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah give, give me a break. Tell me exactly where you were. Um, now, the other thing is he was very vocal and out front with the media, giving interviews and talking as as the search for Molly Tibbetts um, was progressing. And to me, that's another episode of Law and Order, which is where I get a lot of my knowledge from, apparently. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes the person who is responsible becomes very visible in the case. And I've seen this in some other trials in court TV, uh, the, the trial of Rabbi Newlander, the hitman he hired became his spokesperson. So the man who murdered the rabbi's wife was the one who was speaking to the media on behalf of the rabbi. It, it was crazy. It was a weird situation, but it, it was the attraction to the spotlight. And this guy also sort of um, manifested that type of behavior where he's very vocal, which as a member of the media, I like that. Um, but for some, it made him more suspicious. You know, it cuts both ways, right? 
especially if you're someone who is already very connected and would already be looked at. If you don't speak and you're not free with the media, then you start to look a bit suspicious because you won't speak up. And especially if you want to have these, this person found if they're your loved one. But yes, I think when it's someone who's not as connected and would not have a connection to this missing person otherwise, and they become very visible and they're the one that the media is going to, it, it's something to look at. Now, for me, there's a huge lesson in this case, right? It, which is to really scrutinize uh, circumstantial evidence, right? And, and, and I love circumstantial evidence because most cases are circumstantial, but to really give it some scrutiny because it's obvious that even if, even if investigators got it wrong and Christian Rivera is innocent and one of these other four is guilty, that still makes, you know, three or four other people who look really guilty. And, you know, and for jurors, I think about what a difficult decision they have to make. And in a case like this, it's it's you can't even consider any of these people we're talking about as viable suspects, because if you're a juror, that is the definition of reasonable doubt. You, you think, well, it, you know what? There's a reasonable argument that one of these other guys could have done it. I think there's just not enough. Yes, there's something that would open up an investigation, a reason that they should be looked into. And it's really good that investigators did thoroughly vet them, because if they didn't, that would be an excellent case for reasonable doubt in the Rivera case, because there are these viable people. If the defense found them and they were the ones saying, hey, we found this guy who wiped his cell phone. We found this person who had a history of stalking women. Why weren't they questioned? So I think it's good that investigators looked at them thoroughly, but there would need to be more to link them to this, especially the fact that Molly Tippett was still missing. And these men were not the ones who led officials to her body. Okay, let's get to the final suspect. And this one, um, so many little nuggets that are suspicious. First of all, he's from out of state. This guy is from Nebraska. And two days afterwards, about 30 miles east of Brooklyn, Iowa, where Molly disappeared, he went to a, a dealership, a used car dealership, and he bought a used car for 3500 bucks. Nothing suspicious about that. But then left his car at the dealership. So he ditched his car, got a new car, and and booked out of town. Um, the man who sold him the car said, yeah, he, he, he took with him a, a little small bag he had with him. And the guy's story was that he was going to visit, uh, I think, a foreign girlfriend in Indiana. Like, what does that mean? I'm you know, That whole thing just sounds just reeks of something weird is going on. This guy from Nebraska is driving through Iowa and ditches his car, gets another car, and is going to Indiana to meet his foreign girlfriend. What? This makes total maybe sense he should, to me, maybe, really. It does make sense. right? Maybe this guy should have a reality show. I don't know. The foreign girlfriend has never been in town, so he needs to get a nicer car to take to her. And I don't know that it would have been nicer if he's paying 3500 bucks for it, but... Yeah, it could sound suspicious for your typical person in Brooklyn, Iowa. Now, here's here's some more of these little factoids for this guy. He, he told the dealership, listen, I'll, I'll come back for my Chevy, right? I don't know if he left it at the levee or not, but he, he, he said he would return for his Chevy. But then he did not leave any contact information. He just bought the car, left, left his car, said, I'll pick it up later. But like, didn't say, here's my phone number, here's my name, anything like that. So... Um, investigators 
spoke to a witness who said he saw, or she, they didn't identify him, uh, a suspicious vehicle resembling a Chevy near Molly's home on July 18th. So now all of a sudden you've got a car that could potentially resemble the car that's been ditched by this Nebraska guy. So they go take a look at the car. And what do they find in the car? Of course, some reddish spot on the back seat and a dark hair, woman's hair, long hair. So obviously they send that stuff off to the lab and and the wheels are turning like this is it, right? This guy is driving through town. He's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, drifter, whatever, crime of opportunity, and then has to ditch the crime scene, which would be the car. Sounds like an open and shut case to me, Julie Janae. It sounds like the second suspect in a Law and Order episode. <laughs> this is number not, two. Not the third or final one, but uh, it's definitely the one where they're like, this is it. And you don't know if you're close enough to the end of the show for this to be the trial. But yeah. Well, here's what happens. Next, they go into his digital footprint and they get permission to examine his Facebook pages. And guess what he likes? Uh, dozens of scantily clad women and athletes. Mm. Molly Tibbetts, uh, athlete, jogging. I mean, are you kidding me? That That's not enough? Come on. I can go to a judge right now and get a warrant for his arrest. I don't know. That's, uh, he's not even from there. Just so happens to have some kind of a, a fetish or what he likes. I don't think that you, the defense would get that thrown out. If it went to trial. So the question is, what did his new girlfriend think of his Facebook pages when they became public is the question. <laughs> and I maybe wonder, she's an athlete. She, maybe she is an athlete. She's a foreign athlete. Okay, so so tell me this. So we've gone through this list of four of four potential suspects that were investigated thoroughly by um, law enforcement in this case. Do you think the defense will attempt to bring them up? Do you think the prosecution will bring this up? How how does this end up playing out inside the courtroom? Because during this podcast right now, I, I think we've got two thirds of the audience thinking that uh, we've got a wrongful, a potential wrongful conviction of Christian Rivera coming up in the Molly Tibbetts trial. But how do you think this plays inside the courtroom? I think the defense absolutely has to bring this up. There's no reason they shouldn't. I mean, they they didn't. Borderline ineffective assistance of counsel, because if you have these other suspects and if the defense feels that they weren't fully cleared because this prosecution then narrowed and only looked at Christian Rivera after what has been criticized as a questionable interrogation, uh, they, they certainly are going to bring it up and the prosecution will have to head that off themselves and their own opening statement to say that these are the suspects and they'll have to highlight just how uh, huge the resources were that went into vetting these potential suspects and clearing them. And I think they'll be able to do that because this was a massive search and a massive investigation and Tippett's missing, uh, being missing. Do they testify? Does either side call this one? I don't know the answer to this because I've never seen this situation before. But like, does the the neighbor washing his car have to get up there and 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 tell this jury where he was at the time of the killing? Because it it I, I don't know how this plays like the defense may not want all that information, but 
do prosecutors want to bring these people in to clear them? Do they want to do they want to call the farmer with the history of stalking women and put him in front of the jury? I I don't think so. This is going to be fascinating to see how this could potentially play out. They probably already deposed them and gotten a feel of how they'll be on the stand. And if they come off creepy on the stand, there's that possibility that the defense is going to want to put them up there. Now we're turning this into a, a, an episode of Matlock, where we're going to try to convict someone else during the trial and put them on the stand. That's what Ben would do. He would call them to the stand and then uh, basically get them to almost confess. Or uh, Perry Mason could do that too, but that's that's an old time show, not as realistic as Matlock. Um, so, Julia Janae, this is going to be a, a fascinating trial. Um, we didn't spend any time talking about the defendant, uh, but in a future podcast, uh, we're going to have to do that because um, just give folks a little hint here. There, there is some strong evidence against Christian Rivera. There is. There's not only his confession and him leading the prosecution or the investigators rather to the body of Molly Tibbetts in a cornfield, but they also searched his vehicle and they found uh, blood evidence, DNA inside of his car. He does not have an alibi. Um, and he was a migrant dairy farm worker near where this happened. Uh, so though there are a lot of questions and criticism about that confession and him leading investigators to the body, uh, the judge has allowed not only the discovery of the body to come into evidence, but any statements that were made after he was Mirandized, because actually when he was first arrested, he was not fully read his rights. So the statements that he made during uh, what was a 11 hour interrogation, uh, a lot of those statements will not be coming in before the jury. All right. Court TV legal correspondent Julia Janae, thank you so much. We'll be talking again about this case and others. Uh, when we come back, though, and, and Julia hinted at it, um, you know, we've got all these other suspects, which is extremely unusual, fertile ground for the defense. But I'll tell you when we come back how it really doesn't matter because defense attorneys employ a little trick in front of juries, whether they have other suspects or not. I will reveal that trick when we return. Renowned journalist Ashley Benfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history. This is the new chapter in true crime. Judgment with Ashley Benfield. All new episodes Sunday nights at 8 on Court TV. So this is a case, as you've been hearing, with lots of suspects. It, it's a, a classic whodunit. And despite the fact that all these potential suspects were investigated and cleared by law enforcement, they haven't been cleared by a jury. And, and to what extent have they been cleared? I mean, is there still a reasonable argument that you could make based upon this evidence that one of these other suspects could be responsible for the murder or played a role in the murder? I think that the potential lives out there and, and the defense, I think, will attempt to exploit it at trial as they should. That's the job of a defense attorney is a vigorous defense. And to put the prosecution to their proofs, it's, it's how our system works. Um, and, and I think that the defense will pounce on this. But let me let me let you in on a little secret here. Um, it, it doesn't matter if there are other viable suspects or not. The defense will always find a way to pounce. Always. 
And in this case, as Julia pointed out so well, this was a thorough investigation. They looked everywhere. They uncovered everything. They followed every lead. They looked at at cell phone data, Google data, surveillance videos. They interviewed everyone in the area. They found out who was in the area through the cell phone data. And they thoroughly investigated everyone. So this gives the defense a lot of ammo at trial because they can use all of this and plant those seeds in front of the jury to see if if any of it kind of, um, you know, has some some room to blossom into reasonable doubt for them. And the defense will point to them. I don't know if they'll go to all four, just the strongest. I don't know how detailed they'll go. I don't know if they'll call any of them to the witness stand. But it will absolutely be a part of this case. But here's the trick that defense attorneys employ. And I learned this early on in my career as a a prosecutor, as a young prosecutor. If they didn't do this investigation, right, and they didn't uncover all these other potential suspects and investigate them, the defense would use that against prosecutors. So the way they're going to use all these other suspects to try to raise a reasonable doubt, if these suspects didn't exist, they would also use that against prosecutors and say this was a rush to judgment by investigators. They had tunnel vision. They looked in one place and one place only. And the, and the trick is that it doesn't matter what investigators do. The defense will always make it look like a mistake. Always. You did too much. You didn't do enough. You uncovered all these other suspects, but you only arrested my man. And all this other evidence points in that direction, but you looked at this guy. And then if they didn't investigate all those other people, it's also a mistake. It's... And, and defense attorneys are very good at it, very good at it. And, and in, the, in, the, in, in the second jury trial I ever had, I went against this great, great defense attorney, and I tried to explain this to the jury, but it was a little bit improper, so it was objected to. But I pointed out, I said, no matter what my investigator said, the answer was going to be wrong because he can spin it any way he wants. That's his job objection. And then I got admonished. But anyway, uh, I still won the trial and it stood up on appeal. So uh, no harm, no foul. But the the bottom line, and and I say this because um, defense attorneys always have a defense, no matter how overwhelming you think the evidence is. But this case, the disappearance and murder of Molly Tibbetts will be unlike any other that we've covered here at Court TV. Because There are other people who were looked at and looked really guilty. But as I've been saying, all cleared by law enforcement. We'll see what the jury does at the trial. By the way, that trial coming up uh, this month, as I scheduled for the 17th, uh, our coverage uh, should begin. Uh, We'll see how it goes. You know, we've got COVID out there, so things are touch and go here and there. Um, But for more information about the trial, check out the show links. Uh, We've got more background for you so you can get ready. Um, for the trial of Christian Rivera is the defendant's name, uh, but it's really about the, the victim in the case, Molly Tibbetts. 
All right, folks, I'm on every night from 8 to 11 on Court TV. If you have a digital antenna, please rescan it so you can get our signal and watch the program or check your local listings. Go to CourtTV.com and you can uh, go on the tab to find out where to find us. If you only listen to the podcast and for whatever reason aren't watching the network, which brings you gavel to gavel coverage of the nation's biggest trials day in and day out. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening and downloading. Have a great week and don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.